Well, good evening. And, uh, it's my privilege to uh, be out here tonight, I suppose. Um, I'm sure you were attracted by the title of uh, our little talk tonight, and really that's what it is. It's not going to be a, an in-depth theological lecture. It's certainly not going to be a sermon. I'm certainly not going to speak as long as Reverend Sautel did last week. I timed it at an hour on the recording. I won't do that to you, I promise. And uh, hopefully... Uh, the benefit of our time might be mostly from the discussion that we have afterward. But uh, the title, White Hot Spirit-Filled Worship. Um, worship is a hot topic, isn't it? Of course, uh, most of the mail that I receive, most of the junk mail that I receive in the church office has to do with uh, attending the latest worship seminar, learning the new techniques uh, that will excite the people in your congregation and grow your church and, of course, glorify God. And um, I figured it's time that we give some kind of a response to that. And uh, I'm going to lay out for you all of my particular techniques to make your worship service the most inviting and enticing to the community, of course, as we go along here. But uh, in order to kind of give you the basic approach to what we're talking about, we're going to do a little bit of a role play. Now, I asked Pastor Sautel and Pastor Jambazian how they did this, and they said that they were just up here lecturing the whole time. I think that's incredibly boring. So I need a volunteer out there who is a little bold. Someone hopefully with a sense of humor who won't get easily offended. The longer you don't come up, come on up. The longer you don't come up, the longer we'll be here. Come right. <laughs> Alan. Come on up. <coughs> He's always one sucker in every bunch. <laughs> so the situation is that uh, we are planning your retirement party. Now, let's just fast forward a few years. You look like you're a few, ways away, uh, a few years away from retirement. But uh, I'm the party planner for your party, and so my first question to you would be, what kind of crowd do you want there? What kind of people do you want at this party? you want your coworkers or prefer your family and friends? Family and friends. All right, so coworkers it is. First thing that we're going to do <laughs> for... His retirement party is invite all of his co-workers and maybe only his, you know, immediate family. What about, uh, what kind of food do you like? Uh, soul food. You like soul food. Is there anything you really don't like? Uh, bluegrass. Bluegrass food? Music. Music. <laughs> yeah, bluegrass food, where I've been. So you don't like bluegrass music. So I think we need to hire a DJ who will only play bluegrass music for his retirement party. What kind of food do you like to eat? Any foods you particularly don't like? Have any allergies? Anything that makes you disgusted when you think about it? Anchovies. You don't like anchovies. So what we're going to serve is all forms of dishes with anchovies. Pizza with anchovies. Caesar salad with anchovies. Okay. How are you going to feel about this retirement party? You're not a good person. No, but you don't understand. Because, you see, I talked to all of your co-workers who are going to attend this retirement party, and they very much like bluegrass music. They very much like you and would like to celebrate your retirement with you. They very much like to eat anchovies and all kinds of foods with them, so I want you to understand we have to do it this way. It's not about that. Well, sure it is. I mean, nobody's going to want to come to your retirement party if we design it after the things that you like. We prefer to have a retirement party that will please the people. All right, go sit down. This is kind of hokey, but 
this not kind of hokey. This is very hokey. But the point is, I'm running out of ideas to make the role play carry on. But the point is, I'm obviously setting up the point that when we're talking about worship in Christ's church, I mean, obviously, we don't want, we don't really care in the first place what might be fulfilling to the people who come to worship Him, right? Or what might be more exciting and attractive to the worshipers? The first question that we have to ask is, what does God like? Right? Now, it's interesting that this discussion, this very first most important question, was even just a logical question. What does God like? And maybe if He likes something, then we should tailor our worship to what He likes and maybe conform our desires as His people to how he desires to be worshipped, that question is often ignored. But this idea that worship should start with the question, what does God like, and we should do what God likes, has a formal name in our theology and our understanding of the Scripture, and you know that to be the regulative principle of worship. And when we look out in the culture, in the Christian culture, and we hear expressions like white-hot, spirit-filled worship, um, doing the things that are exciting, uh, they may all be good and fine, as long as what? Those are the things that God has given His people to do. But sadly, a lot of times what happens is people just set aside how God has revealed uh, He ought to be worshipped in the Bible and fill it in with things that they think, even with good intentions, are pleasing to Him or emotionally fulfilling for them or blessings to them. You know, all the Christian language that we hear. And uh, really, in fact, it is not Spirit-filled It is man-centered and directed by our own sensibilities and our own emotions and passions and our culture. And that's something that we need to avoid. I want to first lay out for you a basic definition of the regulative principle. If you want to have spirit-filled, hot worship, white-hot worship, I use that expression because I heard somebody talk about it someday, that God loves white-hot passion in His worship. I mean, that sounds strange to me, but if... If it's meant to say that that is the worship that is pleasing to God. If you want worship that is pleasing to God, you have to follow His instructions because He decides what He likes, right? Uh, I'll give you a definition of this regulative principle of worship. God requires that we in no way worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. We may worship God in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. And that's a quote directly from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 96. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 21 makes this more uh, clear, more specific. It says that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God Himself. And so it's limited by His own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. In other words, God is the one who lays out in his word how he ought to be worshipped and therefore we must follow it. We are not free to invent our ways of worshipping God even if we have good intentions, even if our heart's in the right place. If God has said, I want to be worshipped like this, then we must follow Him. If we don't do that, that's as ridiculous as me throwing a retirement party for someone and doing the exact opposite of everything that He likes or wants or takes pleasure in. Now, we would never think to do that in a retirement party, but sadly, people give little thought to this when they consider what they do, say, in a worship service in a church. Now, 
to better understand what we mean by the regulative principle, because we mean a little bit more than God tells us what He wants and we should do it, I want to contrast it with a, a different way of approaching worship, which some people take when they think about the Bible's teaching on worship. They say that, basically, as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it, whatever it is that I want to do in worship, then I'm free to do it. So they say, well, as long as I come up with good intentions, I come up with all kinds of ideas. If the Bible doesn't expressly outlaw whatever my idea is, then I'm free to do whatever I want in the church service. But that's different than what we're saying about the regulative principle of worship. Because we're saying that God says what He wants, and we must conform to it exactly to what it says. We must not add to it, we must not take away from it. And if we depart from that, then we are displeasing Him in our worship. It's not we're free as long as something doesn't warn us against doing a particular thing. It's that He prescribes exactly how He wants to be worshipped and we need to follow it. So there's a big difference between following the regular principle of worship and the liberty principle. And obviously this gives rise uh, to all kinds of differences. If you look at different styles of churches, uh, traditional, conservative, contemporary, uh, modern, whatever, you see uh, a lot of different things that go on in a service. And this is based on the fundamental approach to the service. Now, of course, it's true that churches that are conservative or traditional and churches that are contemporary and modern don't all agree among themselves exactly about what to do in the worship service, and we'll talk more about this later. And there is always debate, even among churches that agree on the regulative principle about what exactly God requires in the worship service. But nevertheless, we have to start with that principle. God says what we ought to do, and therefore we ought to do it. Alright, that's the quick definition of the uh, regulative principle for us. And just so you know, um, the reformers over time developing this idea did not just make it up because they were always so negative about everything that was going on around them. Uh, The reformers wrestled with this idea and they came to the conviction that it was right based on biblical passages. I'm going to give you five basic arguments that the reformers used for the regulative principle of worship. The idea that we don't have the freedom to make things up. We have to submit to what God reveals and what He reveals only in worship. Alright, the first argument is from the second commandment. So if you have a Bible, Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. I'll just read it. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There's two things we want to say about this commandment. First of all, you remember in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment insisted that we worship the true God only. We should not bring other gods into the picture, other so-called gods, or raise up other things in our lives and put them alongside the true God. But the second commandment says, not only should you worship the true God and Him only, but you should worship Him in the way that is pleasing to Him. The original context of this commandment, this is the second thing we're saying about this, the original context of this commandment is Israel's coming into the land and they see all of their pagan neighbors that are being displaced by God's power. And they see that the way that they worship their gods is to construct these idols made of wood and stone. And they will worship, these idols will represent those gods that they believe in or they will at least use these things of wood and stone in the process of their worship of those false gods. And the Lord says, 
I command you not to worship me in the way that they are worshiping their gods. In other words, don't make any image, supposed image of me, out of things that I have made. And don't use idols and images in the worship of me. One of the things, unfortunately, that people don't see in this commandment is that though God is being very specific to the Israelite people about what he's forbidding, What's lying behind this commandment, the main principle of this commandment, is more than just don't make an idol. It's, I want you to understand that I am jealous for my pure worship, and how you worship is very important to me. This is one of the the foundational principles that the reformers saw in the scripture to sort of defend this idea that we should only worship according to how God commands. It's because he is very concerned with how he ought to be worshipped. It's not just that he cares about idols. When John Calvin writes about this passage, he says, yeah, sure, it's talking about the, the making of physical idols, but God is doing that. He's using that as a gross example, an extreme violation of the principle of departing from godly worship. It's not that all that he cares about is idols, but he cares about his pure worship in general. And to prove that, he brings up this gross violation, the making of a statue or an idol to represent him or to be used in worship. So the second commandment is showing us that God is very jealous to be worshipped in the way that he has revealed. Second argument. God severely punishes those who, even though they seem to have good intentions when they are worshipping Him, uh, even though they have good intentions worshipping Him, He punishes those who worship Him in a way that He has not commanded them. Now, there's two examples of this. Now, you might say, well, so what? We see an example in Scripture of somebody being punished for not worshipping God. How does that prove the regulative principle? Well, it proves it because the character of our God is that He will not tolerate people worshipping Him in ways that are just up to them. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Leviticus 10. I'll just read a couple of verses here in the beginning. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. They put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. So here you have two priests of the Lord. They take these God-authorized utensils for worship but they used them to offer unauthorized fire, meaning fire that had not been commanded. Now, the fire that they offered with these utensils, there's no indication in the scripture or in the story that somehow they were offered in some, like, a pagan ritual. I mean, it seems like the fire that they offered was very similar to the normal commanded fire that they would offer using these utensils in the course of their priesthood, in the course of their worship, right? But what happened? In this case, even though they very likely had good intentions, God immediately killed them. Now what does that tell you about God? That tells you that if there's one thing you don't want to mess with, it's worship. It's when He is covenantally present with His people, you are not free to come up with your own ways of doing what you think might please Him, even if it's similar to what He has revealed. 2 Samuel 6 6 and 7, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. 
the Ark of the Covenant is being carried along by oxen as the people of God are, are marching, are parading, are on the move. And in order to protect that beautiful, holy ark, the presence of the Lord among the people of God, when the oxen stumble, this man reaches out to what? Keep it from falling. Now, is that a bad thing that he did? I mean, no. It's pretty obvious in one sense, right, that he has got the best of intentions. I mean, the last thing that this guy is going to stand by and watch is the holy glorious Ark of the Covenant of the Lord God of Israel fall to the ground because some stupid oxen stumbled, right? Well, he reaches out his hand, he touches the Ark, which God had expressly forbidden, and what happens? He's consumed. Now, what kind of a God would do that? It's a God who is zealous for his, the purity of his own worship. And when he speaks in the Scripture and instructs us what we must do in worship, we better listen. We don't have the freedom to, with our best intentions, tweak things to try and make them more attractive or make them more fulfilling or whatever. We're not worshipping ourselves, we're worshipping God. It's His retirement party, so to speak. Third, third biblical reason that we use. The Bible says that God is most high and exalted and glorious. And I'll try not to offend us when I say, who do we, as little peons in His universe, think that we are able to come up with our own ways of worshipping Him that are pleasing to Him. Did you ever think about that? Where do people get off? Where do we get off? Who has the audacity to think that we are wise enough, even if we were not fallen creatures, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that we are wise enough to come up with the ways that God would be pleased to be worshipped? Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand or with the breadth or in the breadth of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The prophet is mocking people who think that they're wiser than God. And if we don't look to the scripture to see God telling us how to worship Him, then it is really us arrogantly assuming that we have the power to come up with it ourselves. That's just not acceptable. We shouldn't think that way. Now some people will say, well wait a minute though. We were created in God's image and He didn't make us idiots. Obviously He created us to glorify Him so perhaps we were created with some kind of inherent you know, knowledge of what would be pleasing to him, right? It only happened after the fall. Well, what do we respond to that, even if we were to follow that line of reasoning? This is the fourth reason the Bible says we have to follow divinely regulated worship. Our answer to that is that we are idolaters. We have fallen into sin. We are the fallen human race. By nature, even if we were say, endowed with the natural gift, the natural good gift to know what God wanted, to do, wanted us to do when we worshipped Him, when we fell into sin, remember, we decided that we were going to play God. And we were envious of the Creator. We, as the creatures, decided we wanted to be like Him and we wanted to decide what was good. And so why would anybody today, as a fallen sinner, and I don't care if you're a Christian or not, even as Christians struggling with sin 
and wrestling to understand God as He reveals Himself in His Word, where would we ever think that we are trustworthy to devise the ways of worship that God uh, that would please God? And it's not like, too, everybody sits down with a pen and pencil and tries to come up with ways to worship God. But think about it this way. Why would you want to trust the leaders in your church? And some of you, perhaps, are leaders in your church. You know, why should people trust you to come up with your ways in which you want to worship God, to come up with the new, newest techniques and uh, the most culturally engaging way of worshiping God, as if that is all as if he has said nothing about how he wants to be worshipped in his word. Why should you be trusted? Any of you. Pastor Greg. You're not trustworthy. Neither am I. Neither are the elders. Who can give you the reliable account of what pleases God in worship? God. In the word. And all of us together as the Christian community ought to be mutually accountable and submissive to his program for how he desires to be worshipped. Calvin reflects on this and says that we are all his famous line. We are all little idol factories, right? After the fall of mankind by nature, we want to construct uh, all different little kinds of idols. Anything to neglect the true worship of the true God and anything to neglect the uh, right way of worshiping him also that he has commanded. Even Christians will fight this idolatrous nature until we are glorified. We shouldn't uh, trust ourselves then to come up with how we ought to worship God. Let me just read quickly from Romans 1 this is the passage that says it although they knew God this is our whole human race we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened we don't even think straight if we don't think straight why are we going to come up with the ways of worshiping God that supposedly please him we're not trustworthy we claim to be wise verse 22 but we became fools that's what we are And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. We're idol factories. We're not to be trusted. That's why we have to follow what God prescribes in His worship. The last main biblical line of argument and in spite of the strength of the other arguments I think this is the strongest one for this idea that we are not free to invent things in worship or to do things as long as they're not forbidden. But the idea that we have to follow only what the Bible expressly lays out. This is the key argument from the Scripture. It is that God requires all Christians to attend the worship services, right? And if God requires all Christians to attend the worship services and you introduce, even with the best of intentions, something into the worship service that offends somebody else's conscience, when they have been required by God to come there, why would you want to cause that kind of offense in the church? Let me restate that a little more carefully. We are forbidden from putting anything into worship which God has not expressly laid out in His Word Because when we do, even if it was supposedly something good, the people of God who are required to come and worship with the Christian community may not believe that it is as edifying or glorifying to God as you do, and therefore their conscience is offended. 
One of the great things about the regulative principle, which says we must stay only to what God has revealed in His Word and worship. I mean, that sounds so like restricting, doesn't it, in one sense. But really, one of the great things about the regulative principle of worship is that it is actually the most freeing. I really have freedom because when I go to church, I don't have to worry about what some dope thought up during the week that he decided would make him excited and that he would introduce into the worship service and he thought it would really attract people. See, I don't have to worry about any of that. Why? Because I know that if the regular principle is being followed, I, am only, I only have to do in worship what has been instructed by God in His Word. And I am not now subject to the whims of some church leadership, maybe when they went to some fancy pants seminar you know, and they saw the, the big growing church in town was doing it some way, so now we're going to imitate that. I don't have to sit there critical during the service. I don't have to worry about my conscience being wounded because somebody came up with some crazy idea. That is true freedom, isn't it? Now, of course, somebody might say when we hear that, well, wait a minute, what about if somebody walks into the church and we pray during the worship service and somebody says, well, I have an objection to that. I don't... Uh, I don't like to pray. I don't think it's edifying. I think it's uh, pharisaical, and we shouldn't do it at all. What's our response to that? Well, remember, we say that, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but that is one of the elements of worship that God has commanded us to do, and we're not going to go with you over God, so I'm sorry that you're offended, but that's an element that God has prescribed. He requires that we do it that way. It's His retirement party. We're going to go with Him, not with you, and uh, we'll hope that we can explain to you the reasons for it, and hopefully you'll come along and grow more comfortable with it, right? But what was the difference? In that case, the difference is God commanded it. It's not something that's been invented by somebody else or made up by somebody else. So this is one of the strongest arguments, or I think the strongest biblical argument for the regulative principle of worship. It's that if you don't follow it, you are asking for all kinds of trouble and offending the consciences of all kinds of people of God all the time. For that reason, we ought to have enough love of our Christian brothers and sisters not to impose upon them things that God has not given in His Word in the worship service because God requires them to be there. Right? It's one thing if it was an option, but it's not an option. That's where they go uh, to be met by the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are some of the basic uh, biblical arguments that the reformers used to come up with the regulative principle. And, and maybe you noticed about these, these arguments. They're not... It's not like the Bible comes out and says, Thus says the Lord, This is the regulative principle. You should only worship me as I have commanded you expressly in my word. Right? These are more complex or, I guess, more theological arguments taking some of the basic... Uh, revelation in the Bible about who God is and what His character is and how He reacts throughout the history of redemption to different people and their approach to Him, uh, the kinds of commands that He gives, the kinds of uh, interactions that the people of God have, talking about the conscience issue, which is, of course, um, germane when we talk about worship because it's what we are. We're coming together as a community of God to worship Him. So these are arguments that, taken together, really support uh, this basic principle. Now, the thing that I want to conclude with before we go to uh, some discussion and questions about this, um, because I'm sure you may have some or 
considering maybe the applications of some things. And I have a lot of wild opinions about uh, how we should apply this properly that I'm happy to share with you during that time. But uh, we need to have some sort of a, a framework uh, to discuss how this regulative principle has been applied. Because we've talked a lot about the theory of it, but we haven't really talked about you know, the brass tacks. Well, what does that mean like in a church service, say? Well, before we just see from the Bible the four basic elements of worship, I want to give you a few words that will help us have the discussion. And that first word I've already used a few times is the word elements. What do we mean when we're talking about worship we say the word elements? And elements are the things that the church believes are required in a worship service because the Bible commands them. So I'll just give you one example now. Preaching. We believe that preaching is an element of worship. It's something that the Bible commands, that God commands, be done in a worship service. Now, we also talk about circumstances. And circumstances are incidental things to the elements that are prescribed. So when we have, say, in the preaching element, there are circumstances that go along with the element of preaching. One of the circumstances, perhaps, is that you amplify the preacher's voice. Or maybe you don't. Anything that's incidental to the element, something that's really debatable and flexible, right? It completely depends on the culture of the time, the nature of the group that's gathering together, the size of the room, whatever. Okay? Maybe uh, you could also think of a, a circumstance as something as trivial as when you have somebody preaching, he stands up there clothed in dignified clothes. Right? You're not going to stand up there with a guy looking like a, a dope or wearing his pajamas. Right? These are circumstantial to the element. I mean, they're necessary. We have to think through these things. But these things are more incidental. They're not, they don't really have any theological significance. Then we're going to talk about rubrics. Rubrics are the things that go along with the elements but are informed theologically or biblically. For example, with preaching... The preaching is the element. The circumstance is that the preacher wears clothes. The rubric might be a discussion about what kind of clothes the preacher wears. So, for example, when a preacher is preaching, does he wear a robe or does he wear a suit? Well, those who believe that a preacher, when he's in the office of the minister of the word, of course, uh, giving the word of God to his people, should wear a robe, they make theological arguments for that, biblical arguments. Now, they don't really affect the element per se, do they? But they, it's not the same thing as a circumstance because it's not merely cultural or just, right, it's not merely cultural or incidental. It has to do with uh, biblical thinking. What is the best way to conduct the element in the most biblically consistent way? Another one with preaching would be, do you put the pulpit at the center of the room or do you put it off to the side or do you put it high up? Or does the guy stand in the back and preach? That is not an elemental question. The element is preaching. And it's not a circumstantial question because it's not just where his voice can be heard from the best. But some people say, put the pulpit at the center of the worship space in order to reflect what? The centrality of the Word of God. So that would be a rubric type question. All right? I'm just giving us some terms to be able to wrestle with what we should and shouldn't do in worship. Okay, next one. Forms. Element is preaching. Circumstance is the guy wears clothes. Rubric is he wears a robe, say. Uh, For, by the way, circumstances, rubrics, forms, 
are debatable. Elements are not debatable. So, the preaching element, circumstances, the guy wears clothes, well, that's not debatable. The guy has to be wearing clothes. But that's, you know, incidental, right? There's no biblical... Well, never mind. (laughs) Rubrics, uh, Rubrics, the guy may wear a robe to reflect his office. The form is going to be what? The content of his preaching. In this case, is he going to preach, say, continually through one particular book of the Bible? Is he going to proceed through a basic summary of the Bible found in one of the confessions or the catechisms? This is the forms of worship. And again, these are flexible and debatable. Right? Now, Given these categories, the church has asked the question, what are the essential elements of worship? I mean, the whole point of this discussion is God requires us to do certain things. And we must do those certain things, and we must not add to them, and we must not take away from them in worship because God doesn't like that. What are the essential elements? Well, this... If you asked a secular sociologist this question, the the fascinating thing to me is that he could give you the same answer that the scripture gives. Because even among Christian traditions that do not believe the regulative principle and don't even give a second thought to it, it's amazing that if you go from the high church to the low church, from the ancient church to the modern church, and all of its different expressions in between, basically you see a pattern emerging in the worship of the church with four essential elements. Regardless of if people are actually searching out the scripture in the way that we're talking about to find these elements commanded, you basically find in the history of Christian worship these four essential elements in worship. The preaching of the word, the giving of alms, and the giving for the support of the kingdom of God, the administration of the Lord's Supper and of course on the proper occasion also the administration of the sacrament of baptism and spoken and sung prayer and praise you say well wait a minute I'm not, I, not all churches only do those things and I, I agree many churches today yesterday and until the Lord returns will add to these four essential elements too my point is if you look In all the wide varieties of worship in the Christian church, it is fascinating to see that you find these four elements present in worship in almost all of them. I mean, they may add other things, but they certainly do these things, which is amazing if you think about it. And the reason they do it is because anybody who is doing any semblance of anything biblical and is using the scripture at least giving lip service to the idea that the Bible is shaping what they do, maybe it's just because they've inherited it by tradition, has found themselves doing these four things. Why? Because they're in the Bible. This is what God has commanded. This is what the church does. They preach. They receive alms. They administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they speak and they sing prayer and praise. This is what the scripture instructs us to do. This is one of the beauties of the historic Reformed liturgy. Is that it is simple. It is simple to follow these four essential elements and not drown them out with all other sorts of drivel. 
All those sorts of well-intended things that are supposed to bless the people of God and supposed to honor Him when He never commanded us to do it in the first place. So, my message tonight is, my main point, obviously, is that if you want to have spirit-filled worship, it's probably going to go against the grain of what is considered to be you know, white-hot, passionate, spirit-filled worship. It's not going to necessarily go uh, along the lines, obviously, of what's popular today. Uh, it may not always attract the most people, but that doesn't matter because it is not our retirement party. It's God's worship service, and we are to worship Him in the way that He has commanded. And we do that joyfully with gratitude in our hearts. And, Lord willing, over time, our own affections will become more and more in line with what His desires are so there will never be any conflict between uh, what He wants and what uh, we want. So, uh, why don't I just stop there and let's pray and then we can have some, I guess, informal discussion. So, Q&A? Great. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing Your uh, glorious self to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we... Uh, speak with strong conviction, but it's because uh, we have been convicted of our own sin and compromise and our own uh, idolatry and man-centeredness. And uh, we have uh, been brought to our knees to acknowledge that Christ is Lord and that He uh, lived a life of perfect obedience Uh, unto your law and never wavered in his pure worship of you and he followed all of your commands very carefully he never uh, bound people's consciences uh, unless it was through the truth he was never legalistic he was never lazy and Lord we have all of these uh, not only temptations but sins but we have been lifted up by Christ and we rejoice in him and by the power of your spirit Lord we ask that you will continue to shape our understanding of how we ought to worship uh, that we would not be swayed by what the latest fads are and what is pleasing to people and what feels good but uh, rather that we would look to you for uh, guidance that we would stick to the elements of worship and those only uh, that uh, many more in this world would humbly bend their knee and worship you in spirit and truth for we ask these things in Christ's name Amen all right, questions, please. Um, I'm looking through the liturgy that we use here at, at the church. And yes. I see things like the reading of the law, confession of sin, declaration of pardon, reciting the creed, and congregational reading. Where would those things fit within the four elements that you just described? Excellent question. So a number of things in the worship service, in the historic Reformed liturgy that isn't formally called preaching, singing, prayer. How do we see that? Are we Are we just doing what we're saying we shouldn't be guilty of. Um, Well, there's two ways you can approach it. One way is to understand, for example, the reading of the law as a form of the preaching of the word. So, for example, when the uh, minister of the word stands up, reads the law, and then pronounces the pardon, uh, the pardoning grace of God uh, to the congregation, you either understand that as a form of the element of preaching before the main sermon, uh, or you see that as uh, incidental to the, uh, to the essential elements theologically, meaning this, that if the preaching element is commanded, if God's people are called to come together, which they are, to hear the preaching, 
to give of their offerings, to sing the songs, and to take the Lord's Supper, then it seems like, biblically, what is fitting is for them, first of all, to be reminded of their sins. In other words, it seems strange, given the history of worship and redemptive history, for the law not to be read in a public gathering for worship of God's people. In, in which case, you kind of almost see it as an element that's prescribed in the Scripture. In other words, we see the pattern in God's Word of the servants of God, the prophets, standing up, reading the law, and expounding on the law. Well, then, that's a particular kind of preaching, you could say, or it's a particular other element that's also found in the history of corporate worship in the Scripture. Does that make sense? Um, so... That's how we've kind of thought of those other elements. Another one is like the call to worship. Well, why do we do that? Well, because that's what's happening. It's, it's incidental to what is commanded, the corporate gathering of God's people. Um, so maybe you could file that under a rubric to all four of the elements. Um, that, that's my best uh, answer to that question. Okay. Yeah. Along with that, Adam, I was going to just ask you to address that dialogical aspect of worship. So I think that might be something that is along the same line that Aaron is asking. You know, this responsive aspect, the minister says something, the people respond, and how does that fit into the regulative principle? Hmm. How does the dialogical principle of worship fit into the regulative principle? What is the dialogical principle? Right. Why is that important? Yeah. Well... Okay, the, the word, the dialogical principle is obviously an understanding of the corporate worship service on the Lord's Day called by Christ under the oversight of his elders through the mouthpiece of the minister. Uh, the dialogical principle explains that what is happening, the dynamic in the worship service is that God is covenantally present with his people. He's with them in a special way, in a way that is more... Um, I would say maybe intensified than in your typical you know, walk with Jesus uh, da- daily. He is present with his people in a way beyond his just being everywhere as being God. And when he meets with them, he is um, dialoguing with them. He speaks to them. They respond to him in prayer and in praise. He speaks to them in the preaching of the word. They respond to him. So... Uh, uh, really everything that is in our all the elements of biblical worship I mean maybe I could connect the two this way all the elements that are prescribed for biblical worship reflect either God speaking or the people of God speaking back to God Uh, so that you know that's always a good test too about uh, what comes into a worship service and what doesn't but that's a pattern that's also revealed in the scripture that, that principle itself that God comes to meet with his people corporately and they are called to respond to him in particular ways. And so, yes, please. Could you address the issue of the use of instruments, choirs, and perhaps even soloists slash performers? Okay. Question of, uh, in regards to the uh, worship service, address the question of instruments. And then also, I'm going to take them as kind of different questions. There's instruments, and then I would put choirs and soloists kind of together, special music kind of stuff. All right. I'm just going to make my notes so I don't forget. I'd be happy to address that and get into trouble. But uh, let's talk about, first of all, instrumentation. And by that, I assume you mean the instruments that would accompany the singing of God's people, right? Okay, well, 
there's a lot of things we could say about this. I, I'm going to address it. First of all, the question of whether or not they should be used. And for the, obviously that's one of the reasons you're asking. For those of you who may not be aware, I don't know everybody in the crowd and what their background is. But uh, there has been debate over time in the historic Protestant church about whether or not any instruments should be used uh, in the worship service. Now, the theological reasoning behind the position that no instrumentation should be allowed in Christian worship today is basically this, that the Lord prescribed glorious instrumental music in the temple worship of the Old Covenant, which was pointing forward to the coming of Christ, and along with the temple itself and the temple sacrifices, when Christ came, they would argue, all instrumentation, which was so glorious and celebratory, also went away because it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, to they would say, to use instruments today in the corporate worship of God is basically like going back to the old dietary laws and the old sacrifices of bulls and goats and denying Christ. Okay? Um, although, to be fair, they wouldn't necessarily tell all those who use instruments that they're guilty of the same kind of sin in that way. But that's the, that's the reasoning uh, behind not allowing instrumentation in the church. And we have to admit that uh, for many centuries in the early church, the church did sing a cappella. Um, the problem is, we don't really have record of the early church telling us why they didn't do it. It seems like the early church was singing, obviously, what their singing was patterned after the sing- singing that went on in the Jewish synagogues. Okay? And apparently that music was not done to instruments. They were singing the Psalms, which we're going to probably talk about also. Uh, but they were singing the Psalms unaccompanied by instrumentation. And certainly they had instruments, just like we have instruments today. They chose not to use them. So those who find that theological argument convincing will say, well, the reason they didn't use them is because they thought the temple was fulfilled. And other ones will say, no, there are probably just cultural reasons why they didn't use them. Uh, So history doesn't exactly prove the point for us one way or the other. But we should be, I would tell you this, we can't look at people and churches who don't use instrumentation out of for conscience sake as crazy people. And I don't know what all your convictions are, but... um, the, the dominant historic Protestant view is that we did not use instruments in our singing. We need to be aware of that. Now, that's not true today in confessionally reformed and Presbyterian churches, although there are some denominations that hold fast to that. But we shouldn't look, especially at our reformed brothers and sisters who don't use instrumentation and who give this theological argument as somehow like crazy. How could anybody believe that? Um, they are actually in the majority view in many ways, especially of the early church uh, up till medieval times and then of course uh, we threw out a lot of that stuff in the Reformation a lot of the instrumentation in the Reformation because the monks had took it over and it was completely inaccessible to the common man uh, the common man wasn't even singing for the most part in worship services at that time but um, that, that's my basic take on instruments if you're asking me what I think I don't think that the Bible forbids using instruments in order to accompany music. The problem that we have today, and this is as true in Reformed churches as any other expression of the faith, the problem we have in Reformed churches is that we have come to see instrumental music itself as an element of worship. And that, I believe, is a violation of the regulative principle and idolatrous. 
it doesn't matter that listening to music, instrumental music is nice to the ear. But that is not required of God in worship and we shouldn't do it. What if somebody doesn't like music? You say, well, who doesn't like music? Well, there are people, believe it or not. I mean, why can't I decide to break out a poker game in the worship service? You say, well, why would you ever do that? Well, why would you play instruments in a worship service? Well, it's pleasing to God. According to who? Poker is pleasing to God. Wait a minute, what are you crazy? No, this is the point, the regulative principle. Instrumental music itself is not an element of worship and we shouldn't have it. Now, we only allowed in the churches, now I'm going off on this, but this is interesting to me at least, we only allowed instrumentation in the worship service in order to accompany and help the singing. So in my opinion, if the singing is, is being helped by the accompaniment, and is the music itself is not overpowering. And by the way, my first year in seminary, I'll never forget it, uh, we were being instructed on some of these ideas, and this guy stood up and said that when he walks into the church and he hears the organ, he knows he is in the presence of God. <laughs> Why? Because of the organ? And I mean, I, I'm in a church that uses an organ to accompany the singing, and one of the things that I uh, think tends to happen in traditional churches that use that stuff, it, it can overpower the singing of the congregation, which is sinful. It's not just bad or a worse option than others. It's bad. It, music is... The instrumental music can only be defended, in my opinion, if it is... Uh, an accompaniment, a true accompaniment, a help to the singing. And that's the only way. All right. So choirs and special music. <laughs> All right. I'm, I will not go past. Well. All right. Choirs and special music. <laughs> so, uh, where do I start? I'll just give you the short answer. My conviction is that Singing done by particular individuals is, uh, you know, as opposed to congregational singing as a whole, is a violation of the regulative principle with some very narrow qualifications. It seems like some of the psalms may have been composed to be sung with a cantor. Um, and a cantor not just meaning somebody that would sing a line and the congregation would sing the line back, but maybe that there was some kind of interaction uh, possibly between a singer and the congregation. One person would sing one line and the congregation would sing the next line, say not necessarily just repeating that line. There may be some of that. I'm not enough of a music scholar to know, that, or especially a Hebrew music scholar to know that. Um, but I, I, I'll just be honest. I don't see special music solos and choirs where you have a class of singers uh, apart from the congregation as something that is prescribed by God in the worship service. Now again, I'm quick to point out, you know, very well-intentioned many times, um, you know, for very good reasons. It's very emotionally uplifting, some, you know, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes I, I like it, but that isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about worship. And uh, so I, I would take a pretty strong view of that. I'll just be honest with you and say that I don't think it's uh, prescribed. But, you know, that's a clear example of something that confessionally reformed and Presbyterian churches have not agreed on. I mean, you you run the gamut. Um, all right, I'll I'll stop there for now and see if we can get some other questions. Yeah, you first and Aaron and Thomas, go ahead. So, when you talk about the regular principle, is it very narrowly focused on 
what is and isn't allowable in a worship service only, or is it broader to art, uh, cultural events, evangelism meetings? Right. Like Question is, is, uh, is the regulative principle broader than the corporate worship service? Do we apply this principle in other areas of life? The answer is no. It is not broader than the corporate worship service. Because there are things that are distinctive about the corporate worship service that, you know, from our everyday living. In fact, we should apply the liberty principle, if you want to call it the opposite of that. You know, I can do anything that's not forbidden in the arts, in the culture, in my personal life, in my, you know, day-to-day living, morality. Um, it would be silly, and I don't uh, know, well, I know of some cults that view this, but it would be silly to approach our daily life and what we do out in the culture and arts and that sort of thing from the regulative principle perspective. So the answer is no. We, we keep a narrow focus when we talk about that. Basically, we're, the application of it is the worship service today. In, in general, we would talk about any time there is uh, covenantal, Contact with God and His people. That's why we use things like the story of the priest being killed for misusing the utensils in the Old Testament to apply to us in the worship service today. Because, you know, actually we have even closer contact with heaven than they did. You know, as we had in our opening prayer here, being uh, now the new way being lifted up and us into the Holy of Holies. And uh, so, it's wherever we are covenantally in the presence of God, and that is in corporate worship today. Okay. So, yeah, in the back, and then on. Yeah, you're up. Um, In, for the true church, we talk about uh, the marks of the church, uh, preaching of the word, um, sacraments, and church discipline. If you go to a new area, and you see those things being done, but, in their liturgy, they have something added. Right, an award ceremony for the the children who had Absolutely. who had done their sewing. Never mind. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, never mind. I once saw a church in a thankfulness to a pastor. They they gave him a life size Nestle Crunch bar right in the middle of the service and sang happy birthday to him or happy anniversary of his ministry during the worship service. Anyway, so yeah, say the church is perfect, but that happens. What's the question? Yeah, do you do you do you look at that church as something that you should attend or not attend, or how do you, how do you do that? Good question. Um, some corruption in the worship does not disqualify a church from being categorized as a true church. We, we don't add obeying the regulative principle as we understand and apply it as the fourth mark of the church. Insofar, except that we have to have the preaching of the gospel in the worship service. We have to have the proper administration of the sacraments in the worship service. And we have to have the exercise, the godly exercise of church discipline either in the worship service or in the life of the church. If they have other things wrong with them, like all of our churches do, it doesn't disqualify them as a true church. Now, in terms of your own decision whether or not to attend that church, you may have to, as we always 
well, we shouldn't say we always, as we sometimes do, choose between a couple of true churches, right? I mean, I may choose to go to this other one because they do these hokey things in the worship, even though it's a true church and there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to be, you know, careful about this. Like, what I, for example, my position on choirs and special music, I mean, what I just said is like scandalous to some ministers in our federation of churches. Now, do I believe that they're false churches? But no, not in any sense whatsoever. And my own church and this church, I'm sure, has our own set of problems. But, so no, it doesn't disqualify a church as a true church, as long as they have the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments at least. But you have to, you know, use your wisdom and go to the best church you can find, you know, when you you ever have to make that decision. So, uh, I hope that helps. Yeah. Um, and maybe this will be the last formal one, unless we want to talk more. I don't know what time is like. Anyway, go ahead. So my question was kind of in line with Steve um, about like if it's not a Sunday worship service, but it is like a meeting like this where Christians meet, and you are going to, you know. Yeah, the answer is no. Regular principle doesn't apply. I feel free to role play. Yes, you can. I, you can do whatever you want, for all I care. I, you know, that's exactly right. I, I'm free to do role-playing during uh, a lecture like this, something that is a, an absolute nightmare, and judgment would probably break out immediately if I did that and tried to do something like that in a worship service. So, yeah, there, there is a, difference, a, a massive difference uh, between you know, where we apply the, the, the regular principle. Yeah, I said, what's the time? You're going to have to direct me. Two more questions. All right, and I'm going to stick around, so yeah. How does the Reformed Church feel about lifting up hands and dancing and stuff like that? Yeah. Good question. How does the Reformed Church feel about lifting up of hands and dancing and, and the like? Well, I'm going to separate those two out lifting up of hands and dancing. Um, let me make a broader comment first. Uh, the Reformed Church today doesn't always look like it did in the past. Uh, for example, it's pretty much unheard of that people would pray in a Christian worship service sitting down in their chairs. Now, if I remember correctly, in this church, do, does the congregation kneel when there is prayer? Confession. It, oh, in the prayer of confession. And then in the pastoral prayer, everybody sits in the seat or what? Okay. So... What's interesting is that, you know, historically the Reformed Church thought that kneeling or standing was the only appropriate posture for prayer. Um, I'm not exactly sure about the raising of hands. I know one thought that we've had on that, we, the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, I ask uh, holy men everywhere lifting up of hands and in uh, the prayers that they're offering. One thing we don't like is when people use that passage to require others to lift up their hands as if Paul can't, you know, speak. Uh, you know, every time Paul says something, you take it so literally and precisely that that becomes a law for every, you know, thing in every circumstance. So, in other words, there's debate about that, whether that's like a rubric or a circumstance of, of the element of prayer. You know, if it was a rubric then it may be wiser to do that if you discern from the Bible that, or you know, you may think it's better to kneel or to stand or whatever. People have always thought in our tradition that sitting was wrong. We sit in our church, I, you know, tradition, right? Um, so we've been, all, we've been different places on that, and different churches practice different things today. In terms of, um, I'm sorry, what was the other one that you mentioned? Dancing, right? Dancing has been viewed as 
clearly in the majority of confessionally reformed and Presbyterian churches has been viewed as uh, an, an added element, so something that has been forbidden by the regulative principle of worship. That is dancing in the corporate worship service. Uh, unfortunately, too, some you know hard-hearted, old-style traditionalists have said that all dancing is sinful and whatever, even though we see example of dancing in the scripture for various reasons, a celebration, you know, uh, joyous occasions, military triumphs, those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I would say the good part of the Reformed tradition would embrace dancing for uh, either cultural reasons or specific redemptive historical reasons like Israel winning a military victory, which is not... The church doesn't fight wars today, so that doesn't really apply. But they have not uh, seen it as accept- an acceptable part of worship. It's not. Uh, it, it hasn't been seen as obviously as a circumstance, but also as an acceptable rubric of any element. And it's certainly not an element. You don't see anything like that in the in the uh, early church, according to scripture. So that that's kind of our basic view on it. I, I would say. Yeah. Now I was supposed to take one more, or did? Yeah. Yes. Um, how do you define? I mean, just quickly, um, like a proper sermon. You know, I mean, you can go to some churches nowadays, and I guess kind of hear this psychology and come out of the church for an actual sermon. You know? Mm-hmm. So, are you? Yeah. Are you asking it? I guess what you're asking is what what so-called preaching meets the definition of that essential element that's prescribed, right? Well, I, yeah, there are certain characteristics of preaching that need to be present. Otherwise, it's not really preaching. I mean, one of them, I mean, before you talk about what is actually said, I would talk about, you know, Romans 10 and the idea that somebody has to be called and somebody has to be sent. And this all presumes a lot of things about the structure of church authority, and uh, the prophetic hands being laid upon the person at some point who is supposedly being ordained to the office of minister of the word. The person has to hold that office in order to preach. Uh, the content of the... I mean, if I, could say, if I could answer in one word, content, the answer is Christ. Now, how Christ is mediated to his people through his word, you can describe a lot of different ways. Law and gospel, um, you know, sola scriptura, uh, but but not, I wouldn't say that every particular sermon has to have every element of you know the true biblical theology to be a, a faithful sermon. So it's it's a little maybe I have a little trouble answering the question in a, in a short way. My main concern is there's an ordained servant of the word of the Lord preaching the word of God, meaning giving the word of Christ to His people. Um, there are all sorts of kind of ways we could analyze whether or not that's happening, but um, that's that's the quick answer, I would think. All right, so thank you guys. It was good to be here, and uh, I'll stick around a little bit. I know there's a lot of uh, good discussion we could have uh, continuing on this topic, but I appreciate the time. So it's good to see you. Well,